Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Hi. This week I want to tell you the story of Harold Shipman, potentially the most infamous killer I have covered on the show. Now it has ended up being a huge script, so... As the actress said to the bisher. Mm-hmm. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> so <laughs> Is that we... you put it in the script? <laughs> mm. So we are going to release this in two parts. I'm going to completely copy Mark here, and we're going to release both in the same week, rather than making you wait till next week. However, it isn't going to be as we did last time with the Wednesday, both parts. I think it's more likely to be, what, Wednesday and Thursday, or maybe Wednesday and Friday? I think probably Wednesday and Friday, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. So you'll still get two episodes from us this week, though, guys? Yeah, and you'll only have to wait a day or two. I might be able to get part two out on Thursday, but I doubt it. Uh, so we'll go with uh, Wednesday for part one and Friday for part two. Um, so before we begin, we would just like to give a massive shout out to all of our lovely Patreon supporters. Thank you so much, guys, for your ongoing support. It means the absolute world to us. And if you would like to support the show through Patreon, then you can just head to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. So this is such an interesting case because Shipman is probably the serial killer who has killed the highest number of people, but there are no official figures. And I also find him really fascinating because we will never know for sure why he did what he did. The reason I wanted to cover him is because a few weeks ago I read an article about Dr. Amir Hanan, who took over from Dr. Shipman at his surgery, and it was such an interesting read. He talked about how he had applied for his first ever post as a newly qualified GP at a surgery that looked cosy and small, but he didn't realise that nine months previously, the doctor who had practised out of the surgery, Dr. Harold Shipman, had been convicted of murdering his patients. The day before he was due to start working there, he was watching TV with his wife, and they saw a whole load of elderly men and women all sat on the floor of the waiting room of his new surgery. These people were protesting their new doctor, and he said he felt like he was due to walk into a war zone. He said to the Manchester Evening News, In the morning, I arrived bright and early to find that Shipman's wife had turned up the night before and taken the computer system away because it had been owned by Shipman. And um, when you mentioned Shipman's wife, um, she just scares me. And (laughs) I know she wasn't convicted of anything and they said that she wasn't aware of what he was doing, but she's quite a scary looking person. I'm allowed to say that. And I think it'll be interesting as we go through part one and part two, and I'm sure we'll discuss some of our own theories around this. Mm -hmm. I think it will be interesting to have a conversation around Primrose, I believe was her name. Oh, Primrose Shipman, Um, that's it. Yeah, and what Mm -hmm. what she knew and what she didn't know. Yeah, it's an interesting one. She's a really interesting character. So yeah, we'll definitely have to do that. And I'll I'll kind of um, watch this space until you've kind of regaled us with a bit more information about her, because I'm probably making a bit of a judgment on very limited information at the moment. To be honest, I think there is a lot of limited information. But yeah, absolutely. We will revisit this and also get a bit of a discussion going with our listeners as well and see what they think. Yeah. Dr. Hernan then spotted the couch on which Shipman had killed numerous patients, so he immediately got rid of that. And he said he was not only dealing with angry and grief-stricken patients, but also with his colleagues who were trying to deal with the shocks too. And the town of Hyde, seven miles away from Manchester, was filled with people who knew someone whose life had been cruelly cut short by Shipman, whether it be a relative, neighbour, colleague or an acquaintance. 
Dr. Hernan said, I learned very quickly that the main concern of my patients was, why should I trust you when one of you murdered my loved one? Which you can understand. And so he worked really hard on building the trust of his patients, sharing with them what he was writing and allowing them access to their own medical records. They had never been allowed this before, as Shipman would of course wanted to keep things secret. So this new doctor gave them the power to question his decisions or to ask him questions. And this transparency proved his worth to the community that had been absolutely rocked. And do you know what I find also quite interesting? So you talked about the town of Hyde and the real community vibe there. And there weren't really many people in that town that hadn't at least known of somebody who had been um, affected by what Shipman had done. Mm -hmm. And it was almost like it's a bit like a metaphor for where we're at now. He was almost like this virus spreading through the town and infecting Mm -hmm. people's lives by killing their loved ones. Thank you. It's so true, though. It absolutely it is. is. Isn't it, really? He was like this cancer that was, um, yeah, just kind of spreading uh, amongst the whole town. Mm-hmm. So we are meant to be able to trust our doctors. They are there for us in our most difficult times, and they should be there to help us not to take advantage, and especially not, and it sounds really silly to say and quite obvious, but not to murder us. They're there to help us get better. I think that's worth worthwhile saying that because that sets a lot more context. This isn't any Tom, Dick or Harry. This was a respected doctor mm-hmm. in a community that people should have been able to trust probably more than anybody else within yeah, that community. Exactly. It reminded me of Police Inspector Darren McKee, whose case you covered earlier this season. As a society, we expect our police to uphold the law perhaps more than what we should because they're there to tell us not to do something wrong and they should lead by example Mm -hmm. and set that set that direction yeah exactly in series one we did a crossover episode with kate at the ignorance was bliss podcast in which we looked at beverly allett and she was a nurse who killed a number of children in her care there's just something so horrendous about someone who's meant to be helping someone get better instead taking advantage of the situation for their murderous intent So not only are the loved ones of Shipman's victims affected, but his actions have had far-reaching consequences for many others. Dr. Hanan is a key example because he had to step into the shoes of his predecessor but make huge changes. But there were also a number of changes made for GPs across the board, which I'll cover later. Currently, with the impact COVID-19 is having on our society and the NHS, some of these rules are having to be lifted, which must be quite scary for the doctors who have spent the last 20-odd years following certain guidelines. And one of our listeners recently told us that his grandmother was one of Shipman's patients, although luckily not one of his victims. He told us that she had been a patient of his before Shipman set up his own practice, but luckily for her, she didn't move to this new practice with him because he wouldn't also take her brother on as a patient. She wasn't a huge fan of Shipman's as she felt he snooped when he made house calls, so luckily her decision not to swap doctors, well, not to stay with her doctor, sorry, and to swap doctors meant that she wasn't one of his patients when he was killing elderly women. That is so interesting, isn't it? I know. I really was grateful to Rob for sharing that with us, actually, because that's someone who hasn't even been affected by the crimes directly, yet has a link to him. Yeah, and it's it's just so interesting to get that unique insight into what that doctor was like. So, you know, Shipman would go out to people's homes to do these house calls and was obviously looking around to see what kind of shit they had, whether it, there was anything of value, for example, um, which I know we'll come on to later. But yeah, that's mm. really interesting. Yeah. So thank you very much, Rob, for sharing that with us. And I really hope you enjoy this episode because I know you said that it's something you were looking forward to hearing more about. 
So let's begin this episode with some information about Harold Shipman's early life and career. Harold Frederick Shipman, known as Fred, was born on a council estate in Nottingham into a working class family on January 14th, 1946. His parents were devout Methodists. His mother, Vera, instilled in him early a sense of superiority by making it obvious that he was her favourite child. Growing up, Shipman was an accomplished rugby player in youth leagues. He excelled as a distance runner, which I thought was hilarious because it doesn't tell you what distance, just a distance runner. In his final year at school, he served as vice-captain of the athletics team. His childhood seems to have been quite unremarkable from what I could see. That was until his late teens. His beloved mother died of lung cancer when he was just 17, and Fred oversaw her care as she declined, fascinated by the positive effect that the administration of morphine had on her suffering. Especially oh, in this the... is already interesting. I know, isn't it interesting? Isn't it? it just the, gives you that foreshadowing. Yeah, the foundations for this fascination that he would go on to develop later in life. I'm Mm -hmm. loving it. Yeah, so especially later in the stages of her disease, she had the morphine administered at home by a doctor. Another little bit for you there. And Shipman Mm -hmm. witnessed his mother's pain subside despite her terminal condition until her death on the 21st of June, 1963. On the night of her death, he apparently ran miles and miles through the streets of Nottingham in the pouring rain with tears streaming down his face. Devastated by her death, he was determined to go to medical school and he was admitted to Leeds University Medical School for training two years later, having failed his entrance exams first time and then he served his hospital internship. He met his wife Primrose at the age of 19 and they were married on the 5th of November 1966 when she was 17 and five months pregnant with their first child. Ultimately, the pair had four children together. And that would have been quite frowned upon back then, wouldn't it, to have Mm -hmm. had uh, those kind of relations outside of marriage? So I suppose that, you know, yeah, they were in a sexual relationship. She got pregnant. They would Mm -hmm. have had no choice but to then marry I think so, yeah. I think as well, there's no hiding that. It's not like she's three months pregnant and you can kind of fudge the dates. Five months pregnant, that baby's come in shortly (laughs) absolutely and she would have been showing wouldn't she Mm -hmm. shipman studied medicine at leeds school of medicine and graduated in 1970 he then began working at pontefract general infirmary in 1974 by the time he was a father of two he joined a medical practice in todd morden yorkshire initially flourishing as a family practitioner but just a year later He was caught forging prescriptions of pethidin for his own use after becoming addicted to the painkiller. He was fined £600 and was actually given a conviction for forgery and he briefly attended a drug rehabilitation clinic in York. Shipman became a GP a few years later at the Donnybrook Medical Centre in Hyde in 1977. Here he integrated himself as a hard-working doctor who enjoyed the trust of patients and colleagues alike, although he had a reputation for arrogance amongst junior staff. Throughout the 1980s, Shipman continued working as a GP in Hyde before he opened his own surgery at 21 Market Street in 1993. The number of deaths involving Shipman's patients was higher than any other practice in Hyde for almost every year between 1978 and 1998. In these 20 years, Harold Shipman issued 499 death certificates, which was almost three times higher than the normal rate in the area. For example, with the three times the higher rate, in 1997, Shipman recorded 39 deaths, 
and none of the town's other five GPs reached double figures. Wow. The highest figure of any of the town's GPs for deaths during this 20 years was 210, and he had issued 499 death certificates. Hiding behind his status as a caring family doctor, Shipman lived with his beloved wife Primrose and their four children, and was a well-liked and respected member of the community. But secretly, he was murdering his patients by giving them lethal doses of morphine. In the surgery he set up, there was a side room that had a couch in it, and Shipman would have patients in for routine appointments, take them into that other room, and murder them. He would then shut the door before he'd carry on with other appointments. So... Generally, Shipman's victims were elderly women, so whilst their deaths were incredibly sad for the family, the death itself was perhaps not so shocking or surprising, and I think maybe this is one of the first reasons as to why his murders went unchecked for so long. I think the death rate should have been picked up, though. But mm. It should have, really, but then probably the regulation, you know, we're talking 40 five years ago, sort of in the late 70s, um, nearly 45 years ago, um, the regulation would have been probably less restrictive than it is now, much less restrictive. Definitely. We're going to look at that in a lot more detail towards the end of the second part because um, some of the reasons why he wasn't discovered then kind of changed medicine and practising medicine for all GPs, which is good. Um, It's just crazy it took something like this for that to have to happen. And Shipman would often record false symptoms or details about the patient that would then be used as evidence to the death. Sometimes he would do home visits where he'd see the patient one day, record some vague false symptoms, and then he'd return the following day for a follow-up appointment, but in reality it was so he could kill them. Most of his victims were found sitting upright in a chair, fully clothed, and appeared to have died of natural causes. Shipman would sign the death certificates and then he would also sign the cremation certificate. So he would get paid for this, but also he'd have the perfect way to dispose of the body. And even in instances where the relatives had died of causes previously unknown to the families, Shipman would urge those families to cremate their relatives in a large number of cases, stressing that no further investigation of their deaths was necessary. In situations where they did raise a question or two, Shipman would provide his notes that would corroborate his cause of death pronouncements. And the families then also wouldn't be able to have the deaths investigated if they later became suspicious. And this is one of the main reasons why it's impossible to know how many people truly died due to the reasons he put on their death certificates or how many he murdered. And I'm sure you'll come on to it, but I think I I know there's a massive question mark over how many people he may have killed. But I suppose the easiest way to get some uh, kind of accurate guesstimate on that is to compare his practice to other practices in that area. Mm -hmm. So if they're recording, say, 200 deaths in a 20 year period and he's recorded 500, then it's probably likely that the difference, i.e. 300, Mm -hmm. uh, were, were killed unlawfully. Yeah. I think your kind of um, estimate or guesstimate is exactly as... as Of course um, it is. Of course it is. So yeah, absolutely. I think the general consensus is between 250 and 280, roughly. Um, yeah. So yeah, we'll have a look at some of the figures that were brought up at the end of his investigations, actually. And on top of the murders, Shipman were put through bogus prescriptions for the patients in their own names for the opiates that he used to murder them. So there were no missing drugs or any anomalies there either. 
In a number of cases, Dr Shipman had told relatives that the person who had died had asked him to visit them at home, but telephone and surgery records showed that these calls hadn't been made. For example, with 67-year-old Marie Quinn, who he said had rang him saying she was feeling unwell. Her phone records showed that she hadn't made any calls to him. And sometimes he would tell relatives that at or about the time of death he had called an ambulance, but this also wasn't true either, and at the deaths of Joan Malia, 73, and Lizzie Adams, 77, Shipman had claimed this, but he had not phoned for an ambulance. And why you would doubt that when it's your local GP that's telling you this, you can understand? And it is thought that Shipman's first victim was murdered within months of him getting his medical licence in 1971, when 67-year-old Margaret Thompson died while recovering from a stroke, but this can't be proven. One of Shipman's victims was an 81-year-old woman called Maria West. She had a friend round, Mrs Hadfield, who was upstairs using the toilet when the doctor turned up, and Shipman didn't seem to be aware of Mrs Hadfield because when she came down, he was sat in the front room with Mrs West, and so she waited in the kitchen, and she could hear softly Mrs West talking to Shipman, so she kind of, I guess, in like being polite, she just kept out of the way. After they'd been talking for several minutes, everything went quiet, and so she assumed that the doctor was about to go. But then he walked into the kitchen where she was standing there sort of discreetly and he appeared surprised and said, oh, I didn't know anybody was here. Shipman then told her that he was looking for Mrs West's son, Christopher. And then he said, she's collapsed on me. When Mrs Hadfield asked if anything could be done to save her friend, he replied, no, she's gone. He apparently made no attempt to resuscitate her or call emergency services. He simply opened one of her eyes and said, see, there's no life in there. God, what a horrible thing to say to Mm -hmm. her friend as well. Yeah, Mrs Hadfield said that it was shocking, his sort of disregard. Yeah, the callousness. Mm -hmm. Shipman stayed with Mrs West while the diamorphine had taken effect and then telephoned her son to tell him of of his mother's death. So even that as well, just ringing and that was it. Yeah, yeah. And afterwards her body was cremated. Mr West had described his mother as very, very fit and said that Shipman had told him at first that his mother had had a massive stroke before changing it to a heart attack. Shipman killed 63-year-old Ivy Lomas at the surgery. He had taken her into a treatment room, and he later emerged looking tired and flushed, and he told receptionist Carol Chapman, I'm sorry about the wait, I've just had a problem with the ECG machine. He then saw three more patients before calling Mrs Chapman into his consultation room, where he then told her Mrs Lomas had died, despite his attempts at resuscitation. So she was sat in there, dead, while he just saw three other while patients. He was seeing, while he was continuing to see patients. Mm-hmm. And the the fact that he kind of um, emerged after he'd killed her, looking sort of flushed and hot and bothered kind of thing, and he was saying, oh, there was a problem with the ECG machine. I wonder if she almost put up a bit of a fight or something and he had to restrain her yeah. whilst he injected her. Or, I don't know, maybe he just got such a physical rush mm-hmm. from killing her that it, it, I don't know, it kind of caused a reaction in his body and made him look tired or whatever, I don't know. Yeah, potentially. Weird. So the only kind of, for me, like the saving grace with this is that because these elderly women would have trusted him, I kind of like to hope that they didn't know what was happening to them and they weren't terrified at their last moments. But that's a really interesting point if he's looking flushed and 
Maybe she yeah, did. Yeah, I find that weird. Oh. Yeah, because, uh, you know, in reality, these were quite easy murders to commit. He was mm-hmm. just injecting them, um, probably telling them, I need to give you an injection of yeah. blah blah They think it's something else and it's actually morphine. But I wonder mm-hmm. if she was able to kind of resist it or became suspicious at the last minute. I don't yeah, know, but I really hope not for her sake. Mm. 58-year-old Jean Lilly had been visited by her neighbour Elizabeth Hunter on the morning of her death and Mrs Hunter said Shipman was in the house for about 40 minutes so she had become a bit worried. When she went in she found her friend motionless on her sofa. Mrs Hunter tried to recall the doctor who had driven off but she couldn't get him to come back so she phoned for an ambulance and the crew who arrived said that Mrs Lilly appeared to have been dead for some time. Mrs Hunter actually later confronted Shipman saying you must have known that she was dead. And Alfred Lilly said that Shipman had told him that he had been with his wife for quite a while and had claimed that he had been trying to persuade her to go to hospital, but she wouldn't go. Shipman had told him, she won't go because you're not here. And Mr Lilly said his wife had every faith in doctors. When he left her on the morning at about 5am to go to work, she had just been suffering with a cold, but that was it. And I thought that was really sad. You know, her friend's there saying, you were in there for 40 minutes, she must have known she was dead. And he's sort of like, nah. So she was obviously suspicious straight away, wasn't mm-hmm. she? To be having a go at him. Yeah, and or then even her husband, just suspicious of like, why are you not Yeah, why have you just kind of friend? sat there? And then her husband's just left for work at 5am, completely normal. His wife's suffering a cold. He then gets a call or comes home and and she's dead. How, yeah. how awful. And to say something like she wouldn't go to hospital because you weren't here, it kind of almost puts a bit of blame on him and I felt really sorry for him. That's I true. really hope he didn't hate himself for that. But also it's like that's one of Shipman's mistakes because Mr. Lilly would have known that his wife wouldn't have said that, that she would have complied with a professional, Mm -hmm. with a GP. So, you know, again, that's going to put a bit of suspicion in his mind straight away. Definitely. Shipman failed to examine the body of 76-year-old Muriel Grimshaw when he was called out to her house. And he simply told her daughter it was a nice way to go, saying there was no need for a post-mortem. So straight away there, he's not even looked at her and he's decided that. In May 1998, Shipman paid a house call to Winifred Meller, who was, by all accounts, a fit and active person. Mrs Meller's son, James, said that he had spoken to his mother the night before she died. She told me that she had just put her name down at the local church. They were going to go on a trip to the Holy Land. She was extremely happy and really looking forward to the trip. A neighbour saw the doctor's car arrive at about 3pm and then saw the car arrive again at about 6.30pm, and this was when Shipman asked the neighbour to help him get into Mrs Meller's house. Inside, Mrs Meller was sat in a chair in her front room. Shipman barely checked her over before declaring her dead. And again, in a similar vein to what he did before, he just flicked her right arm up and let it drop, and then flicked her eyes, and as he did that, he said, this lady's gone, in a cold, callous manner. Yeah, that's just appalling, Mm -hmm. absolutely appalling lack of respect in front of family yeah this neighbor said that he just didn't seem bothered and even stated quote he seemed abrupt and he made me feel stupid and silly which is just horrible the doctor told police that he had seen mrs meller in his surgery on the afternoon she died and could not remember going to her house and when the neighbor told him that she had seen him earlier he ignored her and walked off after his 3pm visit, he had actually created a computer entry at 4.03, an hour after visiting Mrs. Meller, to create a false medical history to support a cause of death of coronary thrombosis. I can never say that. Is it coronary? Throm- coronary thrombosis. Coronary thrombosis. Oh, I can't say it. I'm sorry, guys. Mark, you say it. 
coronary thrombosis. There we go. Shipman's computer notes that Mrs. Meller had seen him about chest pains the previous August and January had been entered within two minutes of one another on the day that she died, and a third entry, supposedly immediately after her death at the home, saying that she had refused treatment, was actually made the following morning. Mr. Meller said that his mother had been walking up with him up Wernerthlow Hill two weeks before she died. The walk took several hours and somebody who was suffering from angina could not have managed it. He also said his mother was active and had not complained of any pain during the walk. 73-year-old Joan Malia was killed by Shipman after going to see him because she said she felt washed out. The doctor told her that she was suffering from pleurisy and pneumonia and gave her a prescription for penicillin before he administered her with a lethal dose of morphine. Her friend went to see her and discovered her body six hours after she had been to see Dr. Shipman at the surgery. And Shipman was very blasé and nonchalant when he arrived at Mrs. Malia's house and stayed just five minutes. He took one look at her and said it was too late and didn't even touch her. The friend was surprised at how uncaring he was and he told the friend that clearly these tablets for her pleurisy and pneumonia just hadn't had a chance to work and quickly stated, you'll have no trouble with the death certificate, I'll make one out. Mrs. Millia's niece, Jean Pinder, had actually spoken to Shipman by phone the day after her aunt's death because she was so shocked. He said he was very sorry, but she'd just been very poorly. And when she kind of challenged him on why did he not call for an ambulance, he said it was just one of those things and she could have just died on the way, so there was no point. (laughs) Horrific, Uh, isn't it? Yeah, and the arrogance again of that. That I'll make all Mm -hmm. the decisions, I know what I'm doing. And, you know, again, because as a doctor, people are just like, oh, okay, you know, you you would have known what to do. Because, again, they trust him, of course. Mm -hmm. 68-year-old Pamela Hillier was, to her family, perfectly well. But when she died suddenly, Shipman tried his best to remind them of how poorly she had been for quite a while. Her son Keith said he was very confused by Shipman, who had said Pamela did have high blood pressure, it just wasn't high enough to give him concern but that she had died from high blood pressure. Keith said, He just seemed to go around in circles. I wasn't happy because I was confused as much as anything. And when he asked for a post-mortem, Shipman told him it was unnecessary. Pamela's daughter Jacqueline said that Shipman had made her feel guilty when she asked about the circumstances surrounding her mother's sudden death and that he was very abrupt. She was in absolute shock when she found out that her mother had died. When she'd left 68-year-old Mrs Hillier on the morning of her death in the February, she'd been perfectly well, but Shipman was adamant that Pamela was so poorly her family should have expected her to die at any time. Now, whilst to his patients Shipman was a twinkly-eyed, kind, caring doctor who was a pillar of the community, some of his colleagues did see a different side to him. He was known to have a short fuse, to be rather volatile and described as arrogant, which kind of seemed to have followed him from his early career as well. Every once in a while, his facade would slip, but he usually managed to worm his way back into favour. In December 1997, after murdering Kathleen Wagstaff, he told Angela Wagstaff that her mother had died. She rushed to her mum's house, fearing the worst, but her mum was walking towards her as she looked through the letterbox. And in fact, it was her mother-in-law that had been murdered by Shipman, although they didn't realise it was murder at the time. Angela and her husband Peter went to Shipman's surgery the very next day to go and find out what had happened to Kathleen and where this confusion had come about. Shipman told them that he had been called to her home and found her grey, sweating and blue around the mouth, with her pulse very, very thready and erratic. He told them that he had phoned an ambulance and then had left to get his bag, but when he returned that she died, was what he claimed, but actually Shipman had injected her with diamorphine in her thigh. And... 
after the confusion at the very beginning, this couple actually were thanking Shipman in the end for being with their loved one in her final moments. And that just shows how he was able to pull the wool over people's eyes. Mm -hmm. You know, not only are they not questioning him, they are actually thanking him. Yeah. But after more than 20 years of carrying out his gruesome crimes, probably, we don't know for definite, but probably, suspicions surrounding Shipman began to surface. In March 1998, three months before he carried out his final murder, Deborah Massey from Frank Massey and Sons Funeral Parlour raised concerns about how many of Shipman's patients were dying. She spoke to Linda Reynolds from the Donnybrook Surgery, which was also in Hyde, who in turn told John Pollard, the coroner for South Manchester District. Linda from the Donnybrook Surgery was also concerned about how many cremation forms that Shipman had countersigned, and the local undertaker had noticed that Dr Shipman's patients seemed to be dying at an unusually high rate, and in fact were often in the same position at death. Most were fully clothed, usually sitting up or reclining on some sort of settee or sofa. He was concerned enough to approach Shipman about this directly, who did um, kind of reassure him there's just nothing to be concerned about. So this group of people informed the police. The police investigated, but they were unable to find enough evidence to charge Shipman, as it appeared that all his records were in order. Later, a more thorough investigation revealed that Shipman altered the medical records of his patients to corroborate their causes of death. But frustratingly, this was missed, because Greater Manchester Police assigned the case to inexperienced detectives. And the police failed to contact the General Medical Council or check criminal records, which would have shown Shipman's previous record. Suspicion surrounding the doctor remained. People had jokingly called him Dr Death for a while, and a few months after these reports to the police, taxi driver John Shaw also contacted the police and told officers he believed Shipman had killed 21 of his patients. Journalist Michaela Sitford, who broke the story as a district reporter for the Manchester Evening News, said that the people of Hyde had been calling Dr Shipman Dr Death for two years, initially as a joke, and she even said that older ladies had told her, they say he's a good doctor, but you don't last. Michaela Sitford actually approached Shipman when he was still working at the surgery and asked him to reassure his patients that he was innocent of any wrongdoing. But he, quote, declined in a thin, reedy voice, his beady pale eyes staring at me through his glasses, which I thought was a really good description. Someone's after uh, my poetic license. She said, as I left, an old lady sitting in the waiting room tutted at me for daring to question him. But, aside from people trying to tell the police what was going on, it was actually Shipman's own greed and stupid mistakes that were his downfall when he killed his final victim, Kathleen Grundy. And there is where we're going to end this episode, so join us next time for the concluding part, in which we will look at Shipman's final murder, his trial and conviction, and then some of the effects that this has had on medicine, but also society as a whole. So, thank you for joining us, guys, and um, we will be in your ears again in a couple of days time don't forget to check out our sponsor Babbel for all of your language learning needs See, and and check us out on um, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter the Facebook group's going mental we've got so many people on there now Mm -hmm. So, um, but it's a really good community over there we don't kill uh, people that join that community so um, come and join and interact with us Uh, we love speaking with you guys and some of you just absolutely crack me up I absolutely love it it's such light relief Mm -hmm. and please keep it up and if you're not already a member please do um, ask to join yeah so thanks for joining us guys and um, stay safe and we'll speak to you soon yeah see you in a couple of days guys Bye. bye
Hello everyone, let me tell you about the Apple for the Teacher podcast. I'm Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So you're probably thinking it's about reading, writing and arithmetic, right? Well, think again. It's a fresh take on true crime, where you wouldn't expect to find true crime. In schools, yes, schools. I will share with you the tragic and shocking stories I have uncovered in my own profession. You will hear stories about murder, abduction, school bus hijack, student disappearance, suicide, kidnap and ransom, school camp tragedy, the list goes on. So if you're looking for something a little different in the true crime genre, then Apple for the Teacher is for you. So join me as I present The Bad Apples. But until then, remember to be a good apple. Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Romball and I'm the host of the Open House podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.